It's only once it's all said and done, she reveals the truth, and then he reveals the truth of his assumption that the story is finally concluded. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We're excited to have you with us for another week, another conversation. And this week, I guess this is true of every week before the theme month happens, but I think because we announced it last week, it feels like this week is really the week where we're one week closer to our season seven themed month. Yeah, it's true. It's it's slowly creeping up on us. So uh, be excited about that. <laughs> is the, the I guess the the imperative command I'm giving all of you. But it's not but, complicated. Uh, be excited. <laughs> be ready. <laughs> yeah, we we certainly are. We're we're getting all the scripts together. We're gonna be uh, talking about a, a single theme coming up soon. We'll be announcing the theme soon. Soon. Yeah. Let's just say soon. I like the soon. vagueness of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it will be in November this season, so get ready for that. All through the month of November, we are going to be discussing themes with this uniting element, whatever that will be. All right, we know what it is, and the patrons know what it is, but it is coming up. The announcement will be out soon. We're going back to soon. Yes, yes. So keep keep that bookmarked in your minds. But uh, today we are going to be jumping into another conversation about about a play that uh, is is near and dear to my heart, at least. Um, uh, we are talking today about Tally's Folly by Lanford Wilson. Yeah, this is going to be a great privilege, not only because Lanford Wilson is just amazing, one of those real... Um, kind of central contributors to American drama, but also because, as you said, this play has sort of a a special thing for you, a special history for you that's going to be able to contribute to our conversation. Yeah, it's true. This so I did this play in college. I played Matt in in Tally's Folly, and it's a it's a two hander. So it's a it's a significant uh, portion of my semester. <laughs> that particular semester was uh, learning <laughs> learning my lines for this play and performing in this play. So so yeah, it, it was it was definitely a very special experience and a character that I got to kind of dig into really deep. So it'll be fun to get to talk about it. Yeah, the the play is lyrical. It's romantic. It's uh, also very theatrical, so there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to have, uh, I think, a really fun conversation talking about today. Before we get there, we just want to let everybody know that No Script the Podcast is supported by our patrons over on patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. If you head over there, you will discover a place where you can become one of the patrons who supports this show. We are so grateful to those of you who are patrons. What you are doing over on Patreon is what allows us to actually do this podcast. We love it. We love to talk about scripts. We love the work of making this podcast live, but we couldn't really make it happen without the financial contributions that come through over on Patreon because this is not a free podcast to run. So we're very grateful to our patrons. If you are not one yet, please consider it on patreon.com slash no script podcast. You can see a couple of different tiers and those tiers are a monthly amount that you choose to donate to the running of the 
the show. The lowest tier is just $1 a month. I think most people can afford $1 a month. I hope you feel like you are getting at least a dollar a month out of the time spent with us. So please consider at least that level. There's other levels from there. And speaking of those other levels, we are delighted to announce that we have another playwright tier supporter to the podcast, and that is Abby McCubbin, who has joined that group of patrons over on Patreon. Abby, thank you for your support. We're so grateful, and we are grateful to all of our patrons as well. So please check that out one more time, patreon.com slash podcast. Yes, thank you to all of our patrons over there. Thanks for being a part of No Script the Podcast and being sure we still get to have these great conversations. And now, back to the script. Here we go, back to the script. So, first of all, Lanford Wilson, a new playwright to the podcast, at least. Um, Lanford Wilson was uh, doing theater back in, like, the uh, 1970s and 80s, uh, or at least a lot of his kind of most famous work was written back in that time. He actually received the Pulitzer Prize for drama for this play, for Tally's Folly, um, and uh, but but then continued to have some pretty, pretty significant fame throughout his career. He was elected in 2001 to the Theater Hall of Fame um, and and kind of was uh, an important part of the movement of uh, off off Broadway off Broadway onto Broadway um he's he's uh, his early plays were kind of uh, scrappy plays in the New York scene that eventually carved their way onto Broadway so so he's often done in those sorts of contexts um Tally's Folly the play that we are talking about today is actually a part of a, tr- a trilogy the Tally trilogy um that are kind of loosely based upon this one family in Lebanon, Missouri. Um, the uh, the three plays are the 5th of July uh, and Tally's Folly and then Tally and Son. 5th of July takes place, I believe, 30 years after Tally's or I'm sorry, Tally and Son takes place about 30 years after uh, the events of Tally's Folly and 5th of July. So um, all those plays are kind of in a triptych together. Tally's uh, Folly, though, uh, was produced for the first time in 1979, and uh, that was with the Circle Repertory Company in May of 1979. And uh, as I already said, it went on to win a uh, Drama Critics Circle Award and the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for him. Uh, he also won an, o- an Obie, or I'm sorry, Judd Hirsch also won an Obie Award for performance in that original production of this play. As I mentioned uh, in my kind of conversation about it, it's a two-hander, um, and so uh, it's it's uh, so cast-wise, it's fairly easy to produce. Um, there's some sort of interesting, challenging set elements that I'm uh, interested to talk about, but it is done fairly frequently and uh, continues to be so, as as I am evidence of myself. So, um, it yeah, it's one of his more well-known plays, and certainly one that has given him much acclaim through the Pulitzer and through its posterity. Yes, absolutely. And and alas, I did not get to see Jackson in that performance of Tally's Folly. So this episode will be fun because I will get to play audience to some degree. I will get to play you all because Jackson will have to tell me and you about the production and the fun had in that place. On to just a brief synopsis of the play before we hop in. As Jackson already said, the play takes place in Lebanon, Missouri. This is the Ozarks region of the country. I used to live in the Ozarks region of the country. And as you know, if you visited, this is a region of the country dominated by amazing rivers. And this play takes place on a river in a boathouse 
in a in a folly, the title reference to it, follies. Um, this boathouse is sort of a decorative, beautiful, scenic, romantic spot on the river. It has sort of fallen into disrepair because nobody has used it as a boathouse in a while. Um, but that is where the play takes place. There is a there's like a two two parts to this play, I guess. There is the the part where the play is a play, and then there's a part where you're in the world of the play. What I mean by that is that the show starts with, as the stage directions say, a blank white work light. The artificially the artificiality, I'm sorry, of the theatrical set quite apparent. So there's this beautiful boathouse set on the river, but the work lights are up. And Matt, again, it's uh, he's still, I think, Matt the character. I don't think we're supposed to imagine a Matt the actor beyond Matt the character. Matt the character walks on stage and says to the audience, basically, hey, this is a play. We got about 97 minutes to do this lovely romantic story. Um, interestingly, he doesn't seem to have foreknowledge of how the story is going to end, which is sort of a fascinating theatrical element. But he basically says to the audience, here's where we are. Um, here's where we are in sort of the history of the country. He tells the story of the uh, kind of where the country has grown to before World War II begins, and then the play is in the middle of World War II as the war is wrapping up and the soldiers are thinking about coming home. So this is the summer of 1944. And um, then into that walks Sally. And what we learn is that Matt and Sally have a some sort of a previous relationship. We shift into the actual story of the play, and now we live, I think, 100% within the world of the play. Until the very end of the story, there's no winks back out to the artificiality or the theatricality of what's going on. We are back into that. The, the fourth wall is back up, so they say. Um, and we live in this world where Matt and Sally have some sort of a history together. We know that the year prior, um, they met at a dance in this region, and they spent basically a week seeing each other every day. Um, and this region of Missouri is not where Matt lives. Matt is from St. Louis. He is an accountant there. And so the present moment of the play, he has come to this region of Missouri to see Sally. He doesn't immediately say why. Um, but we learn a couple of things. We learn that from the that year ago time that they spent together, Matt has been writing Sally to the virtue of something like every day. Uh, I mean, he writes her a lot of letters, and she has responded not at all. Or he has responded in one very short note. We learn that Matt has attempted to visit her at a, a hospital that she works at. She is a nurse. And that she did not want to see him. And now, finally, about a year later again, since that last time they were together, he's shown up in Lebanon, Missouri, at her house, where her family does not like him because he is Jewish, basically, and also because he has some political ideas which are uh run counter to their particular bent, let's say. And that family has basically said, get off our property, and threatened him with a shotgun. He did not get off their property. Instead, he hid out in the boathouse, and he counted on the fact that Sally was going to recognize his piece of junk car. She does. She shows up in the boathouse, basically says, what are you doing here? You should go away. I don't like you. I don't want to see you. I've made that very clear. Matt does not believe her, however. 
And what happens is for about however much stage time it goes, again, he said 97 minutes at the beginning of the show, um, (laughs) he he basically attempts to convince her to have a relationship with him through lots of different tactics. The basic sweep is that he believes there is some sort of dark secret that Sally has been holding from him. He believes this because he's talked with her aunt about it and that he needs to get her to reveal that and that's going to be sort of the key to unlocking whatever block there is in this relationship. Across the course of the play, they both reveal a dark secret about themselves. Matt reveals this history where his family, um, basically because his father learned a secret about um, nitrogen in the air and how to turn that into a weapon, his family was tortured and murdered in Europe, and that's why he fled to America. That's the secret he reveals, and he had committed at that point never to have children so that none of them can ever be used as political pawns in the game of war basically. And then if, towards the very end of the play, Sally reveals her own secret, which is that she, uh, when she had TB as a young woman, that uh, illness ended up making her infertile. And that is sort of her deep shame and the deep shame of the family that has been secret all along. And because they both reveal these things and the, those things are in alignment for what their lives are expecting to be together, they decide that they are indeed going to be together. They're going to move back to St. Louis at the end of the play. And then and at that very end of the play, Matt turns to the audience and says, see, I told you I'd get you out on time. That's not the actual line, but that's basically the wink yeah. and nudge <laughs> at the end of the play. And it wraps up. That, in a nutshell, is Tally's Folly. Yeah, nicely done. So, so yeah, you have this, this kind of slow... Um, Secret negotiation, uh, or negotiation of each other's secrets that is happening throughout the play. Um, so you you have you, you kind of ride along with Matt for a lot of it, and he thinks he knows what's going on with Sally. Um, but but it just ends up being turned on its head, and and everyone kind of goes on this journey of discovery with Matt and with Sally as they as they both kind of learn about each other's secrets beyond what they've learned in the short week that they spent with each other in the past. Yeah, there's this claim midway through the play where Matt says something like, we're so alike, the two of us. We're both such private people. And really, that is kind of, it seems to me, what drives some of the tension of the play is their, both of their refusal until the moment of admission comes to admit these things that they've held so privately, these mysteries that they've held. So while I do think you're right that we're along with Matt for the journey of uncovering what this hidden thing is in Sally's life, we also go on that journey about Matt. Too. We, I mean, we don't know this story of his family in Europe, that horror show that he lived through that drove him to come to America. So the mystery, those hidden private things that eventually come to light, this is one of those plots. Yeah, and 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 the the kind of uh, masks or the smoke screens or the uh, distractions the that both shells. of them. The <laughs> eggshells, yes, yes. <laughs> that that each of the characters kind of throws up in front of themselves or, or yeah, gets gets so careful about um, and that they don't want to reveal are, are as much the drama of the play as the secrets are. It's a, you know, as I mentioned, it's two people on a, uh, in, in a folly, right? Which is like a gazebo essentially, or a boathouse or something. Especially one that's, like, <laughs> decorative and ornamental, right? Like, sort of purposeless. Right, right. So it's this this constant negotiation of whether or not 
they're going to still hang out for longer, whether uh, Sally's going to leave, whether Matt is finally going to give up, whether Sally is finally going to give up and and uh, tell either of their secrets. And, and I think it's just fascinating that sort of negotiation between just two people for that amount of time for 97 minutes, as is said in the in the monologue. Yeah, I mean, for for two people who feel so at least in the text, uh, opposed about whether or not they're going to spend time together, right? Matt's like, we definitely should spend time together. And Sally's like, we're definitely not going to spend time together. For two people whose opinions on that subject are so opposed, they spend a lot of time together. I mean, I, yeah. and so honestly, there's some uncomfortability about that, reading the play, I think, in our modern lens, especially like post this Me Too world where it's like, He's sort of forcing her into this private place. He's not letting her leave. He's doggedly pursued her, stalked her, I think you could interpret. Now, all of that, I think, is built on the assumption that she ultimately didn't want to be in a relationship with him, which one of the things that is revealed, one of the secrets that's revealed in this play is that she knows that she's in love with him. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. I was actually going to ask you what your impression was of it reading reading it or as you've interacted with it because um, you're, you're coming into it without a bunch of analysis for, for character analysis-wise. Um, and, and yeah, what, what do you think that that uh, aspect is? Because over and over, I'll kind of reiterate what you just said about like over and over, Matt does like physically put himself in the way of her leaving um, uh, or like physically stops her from leaving a few times. Um, and, and there's, there is this constant back and forth between them of like, um, she, she will say, okay, well, I'm done. I'm leaving. And, and she'll start to walk away, but then Matt will start like saying something over another part of the stage and she'll come back. So there is this kind of ebb and flow, especially of Sally, whether or not she's going to stay at all. So what's, what's your read on that in, in terms of what that means for their relationship together? Why is she here in the first place? Why are they, yeah, why, why are they uh, spending this time together if she is so, uh, seems to say so much about how much she needs to go or shouldn't be? It's troublesome, right? I mean, it is. The, the, the moments in the play where she goes to leave and then is drawn back by Matt's personality, by her affection for him, by a, a dangerous moment where he almost falls through the floor, by his being willing to be vulnerable and her responding to that vulnerability with vulnerability of her own, that's, you know, that's the ebb and flow of a conversation. But then, as you just described, there are these moments where he physically gets in the way. He grabs her. He stands in the way of the door. At one point, he literally puts his hand over her mouth and tracks are back into the boat. Yeah. It's very troublesome. I I, I think, uh, man, I think a successful production nowadays where you were trying to lean into the romance rather than make a um, comment about the troublesomeness of the relationship, and that might be a lens to do the production through, but if you were trying to lean into the romance, I think that Lampert Wilson was trying to achieve, you may have to do some work to not have those moments be part of the play. I mean, we just, as an audience now, we are much more perceptive and aware that that kind of... Um, that kind of physical domination is not romantic, right? I mean, obviously. <laughs> so yeah. I think, yeah. I don't know. What did you do? Did, were those physical prevention moments part of the production? 
Yes, they they were. We had to do a lot of work around how uh, Sally and Matt were uh, were together on stage, um, and to make it clear that Sally was just as fierce and probably more a fierce individual than Matt, and that any sort of physicality that Matt had um, that it, that Matt acted against was not going or acted against her was not going to happen if she wasn't on on board with it in a way. Um, there, there's an important line that we wound up hinging a lot of our reasoning around this on, and it's it's fairly late in the play, but uh, Matt says, I hear you say that. I think I see something different. You aren't afraid of me. This minute, are you afraid of me right now? And Sally responds back, I've never been afraid of you. And, and we just decided for the sake of our interpretation to really believe that and let that be true throughout the play. So that no matter no matter what degree of physicality we were in, um, Sally's not afraid, um, and and there is this kind of uh, relationship with them this this deep relationship that they're that she especially is denying and that he's still like really confused about, um, but is still undergirding the whole of their relationship. There's also a lot of frenetic kind of bumbling energy from Matt. Um, that that leads you to him being this kind of uh, this this physical entity, but not one that is in in like real uh, <laughs> real uh, direct control of himself. He falls through the stage. He like trips over stuff. He's like grabbing at 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 various props that break on him throughout the play. So so there's there's opportunities to make that physicality less. Um, less problematic, I guess I'm going to say. Um, but, but it does take really intentional work and work between the two actors playing Sally and Matt to kind of have a par, um, par strength to, to be clear that to try to communicate similarly, actually to how Shakespeare plays often end up having to try to communicate that both the, the male and female characters have, have equal power in this situation. And though one might be imposing, uh, a, a, uh, or, or trying to get the other one not to leave, the other one could always leave if they wanted to. Yeah. I think I, I really agree. I think that the the play gives you plenty of material to work with to to demonstrate that Matt, when Matt physically intervenes in her leaving, it's really just as a as a way to stop the energy, and not that he could or would have any way to really prevent it if she really wanted to. There are moments where their physical relationship um, is instigated and controlled by her. You think of the the scene that ends up being on so many of the, the posters and pictures of them skating or her teaching him to skate basically in the boathouse and how much of that relationship is entirely controlled by her. The way that she uh, sort of navigates him through putting the gin on his various cuts. I mean, the I think the idea is that... Um, if you if the production is leaning into the romance, then when those moments where Matt physically prevents her from leaving the boathouse exist, they need to be more like like this is something I often think about with like bathroom door locks. You know, they're like they're not really locks. <laughs> they're really just right. about to make it, you know, because you could get through them without any even trying very hard if you wanted to. It's just about the rattle to make it just a little bit inconvenient. So you rethink it. And I think that is where you'd want to go in the production. But even saying that, I don't I don't want to uh, let go of the fact that it's a little bit troublesome. 
I agree. And and I, I even even after having <laughs> done that whole bit about how we wound up working with it, I do want to say that without intention, it is problematic. Um, you can't just I mean, just just doing this scene um, as 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 written. He is putting himself physically in the way of her leaving often. So so you really do need to pay attention to it and and be careful about what exactly you're communicating between these two characters because it, it, it very easily is could be a read and perceived as him physically stopping her from leaving and not taking no for an answer, which is not okay. So um, definitely I would, I would recommend <laughs> if you're engaging in this play, really work together on how you negotiate the power of those moments and, and how, uh, yeah, how, how you make it clear that at any point someone could still leave. Yes, I totally agree. And one of the other things that I think helps with that world of the play, this sort of push and pull of the characters, is that both of them independently exist in this, like, um, I'm going to use the word artificial, and I, I don't want that to come with negative connotations because what I mean is sort of intentionally crafted outside of their love story, right? They're on these artificial detective plots, And what I mean by that is that both characters have independently begun these investigations into each other and sort of uh, known that there is something yet to be discovered. And part of this play is these artificial detective things. The more obvious one is Matt's, right? Because he's created that artificial scenario for the whole play. I have come to investigate the mystery of Sally. (laughs) Literally calls himself a detective. And so... Um. There's that obvious one, right? But Sally has done that too. There's that moment more than halfway through the play where she admits that her and all of her friends have begun their own detective work to try to figure out what in the world is going on with this guy. And in some ways, Sally has to work harder uh, or, yeah, harder to get past this, like, constant smokescreen that Matt is putting out. And the smokescreen for him is just his continuous rattling off of words um no no matter what if there's a chance for him to be talking he is talking um and uh and sally has to do so much work to and and have so much resolve to continue to push past each of those smoke screens the the point where she finally gets him to reveal some of uh, his past is a result of her going like sitting through like four jokes that seem to not make any sense um that she sits through uh like him talking about random people apparently from the moment of the play or for, in, in the moment of the play that it comes about so she really does have to which is she really does have to kind of commit to the resolve to be curious about this person who is not easy to be curious about Right. And so instead, the plot can feel something more like um, like a seesaw or something where it's like they're like pushing and pulling. Are they going to stay? Are they going to go? But to me, that the plot is really more like a spiral. The real story is more how deep is this relationship, is this detective story, is this uncovering going to take them into each other? More than about will they leave the boathouse, will Matt leave Lebanon, is she going to go with him, that sort of in and out, um, external seesaw back and forth. More than that, this is a plot of uh, mystery uncovering, of diving in. Yeah, and and diving in also for... 
uh, on the self level, right? Yeah. So, so definitely, definitely, the other two characters are, are discovering mysteries and 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 being detectives for each other, but they're also entering into moments of their lives that they uh, haven't talked about to anyone for since maybe since they've happened. Um. So, so you have so you you have Matt's story of the slow the slow reveal of how he came to America, and I think what he is saying is a pretty embarrassing reveal for him that he doesn't want to have children. Um, he, he then is doing his detective work thinking that Sally had a child um, and, and discovers that that's not at all the case. Sally is going on her own journey of finally admitting what she feels is a, is a fairly embarrassing thing, that she cannot have children either, which is kind of the, 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 the poetic uh, happenstance, the, the, lucky, the lucky happenstances of the play is that both of them can't have children together. Yeah, talk um, about your deus machina. Like, right, Matt, right. at the end of the play, is like, it's like an angel did it. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> right. very much like, oh, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it certainly worked out. Notab notably, Sally's journey is a, is a much more painful uh, sort of uh, that that being taken away from her. It's not her choice, but rather a disease that was kind of mishandled and and eventually took away her ability to have children. So so she's really in this scene, likely for for one of the first times, bringing that out into the open and talking about it. So you have these these long uh, self work journeys happening <laughs> on on stage two of of kind of delving into a secret trauma that they both have that they've never told anyone about. And these crucial moments where these revelations are made, one thing that I love so much about this script and the way Lanford Wilson has written it is that these moments happen in the course of the play in these disguised, sort of foggy, um, very subtle... Uh, the act the, the revelations themselves are not just revealed into the full light of day when matt tells the story of what happened to him and his family as a child in europe it's in the form of a joke he's created four characters that he says uh based basically their their nationalities and he tells this story as if it's happening to this family like they're like a joke and uh, it's a third person narration and only towards the very end of the story does it bleed into him talking about himself when sally admits that she is in love with him right this incredibly crucial thing to the play does she actually hate this guy or is she actually deeply in love with him but you know doesn't want to because of this shame that her family has laid on her she doesn't she doesn't think she can be with him or or whatever when that revelation finally comes out it's in the middle of her finally telling him get the heck off my property you're not going to make fun of me like this just because i fell in love with you is basically how yeah. it goes that's not the exact <laughs> line right but so it's sort of disguised it's not this deep re revelation oh i'm in love with you it's in the midst of her being screamingly angry at him and then the proposal right this is a hugely vague one where he doesn't really say will you marry me he basically <laughs> just says i came here to change your last name 
<laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's all these vagaries and different layers and, and sort of the, the whole play is like slowly peeling back an onion on, on both of these characters. Um, and, and all of it is true to some degree, and yet the like core truth is what they're both here to find tonight. Um, I think that there's a that's certainly the reason Matt has shown up after, you know, I think a winter basically of uh, writing her daily and kind of pining and realizing he wasn't happy about it. Um, and, and so he's, he's there to really like learn who she is and, and how, and how they can be together. And I think that, that the same can be said for Sally who has come down, um, you know, after hearing that this person showed up and almost got shot, um, that, that she cares about to some degree. Um, she's down there to really learn why, why you keep doing this. Why, why is this continued, uh, to, to be a relationship that we have? So you have this like really intense, um, facade breaking down that happens where each of them tell half truths until they get to the true true underneath all of their uh yeah different levels of of anger and and trauma that they're unpacking and and these sort of disguised revelations where a truth is revealed but not in an obvious way there's those three that i mentioned and then there's that one that you're you're to think you're talking about this core sort of thing that the truth that the play kind of hinges on towards the end, which is the truth of that Sally reveals about what the illness has done to her. And interestingly, that one does not fit that pattern that I described. There really is no disguised revelation there. It is a sort of an outright, vulnerable, embarrassed, just frank, truth-telling moment. And it might be one of the first times that's happened all play. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's why I think that final revelation is so key, um, because that is uh, finally getting down to just uh, a core truth. Earlier on, she told the story of that moment, though, of that time in her life and completely omitted that detail entirely. And it is only after essentially a cross-examination where Matt like throws a bunch of other storylines out there um, that that she eventually gets, <laughs> I think, just so frustrated with him, perhaps, or perhaps is just um, so needing to um, uh, tell someone about the truth of the story that she probably hasn't told to many people that she that she names the truth um, because because at first it was just she just kind of tells this. Uh, almost blasé uh, love story about her and the, the her 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 father and another uh, person in town are the two like factory barons and they were setting up uh, a marriage for their their children. He was the only child. He does, she doesn't even say that at first. Uh, th that uh, they they eventually fell in love, but she got sick. He went on a grade ahead and went off to college and got married, and that was that. That's her first like. Here's the secret. That's that's how I fell out of love and have never loved again. That's her first the first attempt at, at telling it, which is is fairly far from the final truth, which is uh, more to do with um, the two factory barons, <laughs> um, the 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 one the one who she was going to marry into had one son only and didn't want her to not have children with him. So uh, that family told their son that he couldn't marry her, and their relationship was broken off as a result of that. And Sally has really suffered the weight of that shame. And it's not that 
like I don't think the play takes the position that not being able to have children is shameful. I think if that were the perspective of the play, it probably should have been left in the past and well booted into history, you know, just left behind. What what is continually part of the given circumstances of the play is that Sally's family are miserable people who have yeah. who hold on to ignorance and prejudice as if they're currency. And so the the shame that Sally feels is the result of the way her community responded to what the illness did to her rather than any sort of inherent negativity in that at all. Yeah, especially the the immediate family of of her her father and her brother. Um, it's clear that she is not happy with having to live with them right now. Throughout the play, she's speaking pretty frequently about like trying to find a place to live with some fellow nurses um, and try to get out of that kind of poisonous system um, that 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 she is in. And and also, you get frequent glimpses into her kind of activistic um, tendencies and her her difference from her family um as she's she's like kicked out of sunday school for having them read somewhat communist sorts of things or like helping with workers strike movements or things like that so 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 yeah you have you have uh the system around her as the primary antagonist and source of uh source of trauma for her uh so the that's that's where all of this this uh shame is stemming from and it's interesting that it, it's this revelation of her infertility that is the one that is brought without any pretense of artificiality, right? There's no probable lit joke story around it. There is no clever, uh, I'm going to ask you to marry me by just talking about your last name, right? It is just pure truth poured into the light of day as we've discussed, which which as a, as a dramatistic technique really highlights it as the central moment of the play, right? This moment where things are now never going to be the same, this moment that is the crux of what the story has been leading towards. But why is that true of the story? I mean, when Matt admits his history in Europe and the fact that he's decided not to have children, that's also a fairly major revelation, but it's certainly not the crucial one of the play. Yeah, I think it's because of the position that it puts both characters in, at least uh, from a playwriting perspective and from a play reading perspective. They're, they're in completely new positions after she has uh, spoken this truth. She is in this position of finally having spoken the truth, maybe for the first time, to someone who uh, uh, she has said to, has told that she loves um, and has finally kind of recounted this this pain that she has. And Matt has been blindsided for the maybe the first time in the play. Um, Matt is like this kind of annoyingly, annoyingly talkative, annoyingly able to always have another plan, another tactic, another end round. And uh, and and he has this moment of being completely wrong about what he thought was happening. And he has this awakening of he realizes that his story in light of that justifies the action that she took throughout the play because uh, right after he tells the story of of him not wanting to have kids she thinks that her aunt has like told him that she can't and so he's made up this story to make her feel better about it so that she'll continue to go out with him and that just completely uh, that, <laughs> that wasn't isn't on Matt's radar and so in that moment when he finally learns the truth there's like this this crumbling of his 
readiness and talkativeness and facade into this moment of, oh, no, 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 this was completely different. You are completely different than I had initially thought. And you have this moment where the two of them are now at their most honest and most vulnerable. Yes, yes, yes. The, the, the moment where Matt tells his story, her reaction to it is, uh, you know, I'm not going to let you manipulate me, basically. You piece of junk, get out of here. That's the moment where she starts screaming for it. And what Matt says there, and it's, it's my favorite line in the play. I love this line. He says, I have said something I don't know that I have said. I mean, like, clearly Lanford Wilson knows what he's doing as a dramatist because that's a line of some, somewhat like about drama, right? Like putting characters in positions where they say one thing and they're not even totally aware of all the implications what they've said has. And that's really true in this moment. But then that moment when Sally finally reveals her truth, that is truly the moment when everything is brought to light. Not only because she reveals her truth, but because Matt also reveals his assumption, I think. And he reveals that his assumption was she had had a kid. And so now, unlike when he reveals his story about living in Europe, now truly everything is brought to light. Now there's not going to be any more, I've said something I don't know that I've said, because there are hidden assumptions and, and underlying things that are going to lead implications of your dialogue to mean more than you want it. Now it's all out on the table both from Sally and Matt, because Matt's part of it is important too. I don't want, I, I know I'm kind of rambling, but I don't want to lose this. When Matt says, this is what I assumed, that is also a revelation because this play would have been a lot shorter if he had just said that from the beginning, right? Which right. proves how crucial his assumption is as well as her revelation. And, and I think it's notable that there is only a, like a, page and a half basically of the play left after this revelation what what follows as a result of both of them being in this vulnerable place vulnerable place both of them being in this really honest space is they're able to do uh figure out what their relationship is pretty quickly <laughs> um very quickly you have you have a, there's there's even like a, a somewhat lengthy section in there where he brings back this egg analogy that he's been playing with for half the play and and but but in a very short amount of time um they they like they they say okay let's I, I think we're gonna do this. We're leaving tonight. We're not leaving tonight. We're leaving in two weeks. Okay, no, actually, we're leaving tonight. Um, and 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 because of that honesty, because of that vulnerability, they're able to actually engage each other because they're not afraid. I'll I'll use his egg analogy too. Not afraid of kind of breaking as they run into each other. Now that they have kind of given each other about the darkest secrets that they can imagine giving. And, and the, the 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 thing that Matt has given her that is the crucial piece of honesty I, I just think it's so brilliant in the story because it's not his backstory yeah I mean not that the thing about Europe is not important it is it's important to who Matt is it's important that he reveals it but if you moved that part of the story where he tells her that up to earlier in the play the play is still going to be long or you know it's not a long play but but the the story still continues past that because it's not the crucial revelation the crucial revelation is when he says this is what i thought about you 
his assumption about her, that's the real honesty that he offers her in that moment. And as she offers him her honesty about her infertility, he offers back his honesty about his assumption, and then the play's over. Because if you if you, either of those things came earlier in the story, the story would be over then. Yeah, and 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 it wouldn't. It, yeah, exactly. It would it would be over then, and it wouldn't make sense for it to have come earlier because they both enter kind of needing that from each other. They need the the honesty from each other in order for them to move forward at all. Um, and and that's why the negotiation is so interesting. There are frequent times when one of the either of them is like, okay, maybe this isn't worth it. You're not going to give me the the information that I need, so I'm leaving. Um, but but that is the tension of of finally getting to that last moment, and I. I agree. Finally, having done that, it's over. It's like the, the 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 dramatic action of the play has been concluded. Right, and it wouldn't be concluded if Matt didn't admit his assumption either. Right, I mean that's important yeah. too. Right, because if she had just said, "Look, this is what happened as a result of my sickness," that still wouldn't conclude the story because she would still believe he told the story about Europe in order to basically manipulate her. It's only once it's all said and done she reveals the truth, and then he reveals the truth of his assumption that the story is finally concluded. So there's there's a couple other elements that I just want to be sure that we we highlight in our conversation before we're we're coming down to the the end of the time. I want to talk just a little bit about the set um, yeah. and 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 the kind of setting of the play. Um, you, we have this kind of very odd uh, breaking of the fourth wall start and end scene. It starts with the work lights on in the theater, and then you're slowly kind of talked into. Uh, the world of the play by Matt, who like does things like talking to the booth and asking for a better dog barking sound effect than the one that is than the one that is being played. Very funny. This play <laughs> has so many great one-liners that the one-liner about the dog, where it's like this little yipping sound, and he goes, "No, a dog," and they give him like a big bark. That's a great one-liner. There's a lot of those kinds of zingers. Yep. Yeah, it's true. And then there's a lot of this, uh, like. Once you're into the play, there's a a, a pretty robust environmental uh, uh, soundscape that is called for in the play. There is uh, you're you're on a river, so you have the option of water. There's a band playing across the river that is pretty directly mentioned numbers of times. Um, you have the set itself, which is this uh, menagerie of old um, <laughs> old kind of uh, unused stuff and and two boats are on are are called for in, in the in the settings like an overturned boat and a non-overturned boat so it's just a lot of stuff there's a lot of environment in this play um what 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 is that doing <laughs> for the play why that why the demand in the script of of all of these uh, accoutrement basically of of this boathouse well, if you're looking for an answer in the text, then Matt basically tells you why at the beginning of the story, which is, look, uh, he says to the audience, again, this is with the work lights on, look, I am not very good at this. I'm not very romantic. <laughs> I'm not very charming. So I need all the help I can get. So he has basically said, we're going to do this scene, this play Whatever is happening theatrically in the story there, we're going to do this in like the most romantic setting possible, in the moonlight, on the river, in this ornamental boathouse building that's fallen into disrepair, this secret hiding spot for these two characters. Now... 
at, like in, from a from a more bird's eye like writer's point of view, like who is Matt, this godlike person who can create stories for himself and settings for himself and talk to the audience about the story of his own life as it's happening? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, there is that kind of weird extra uh, meta element of him as this like storyteller god character. But right, but I because think he's the- not like a narrator where he's like just telling you the story um, with uh, like the plot with the knowledge of where the plot is going. I mean, he he says at the beginning basically he doesn't know how this is going to play out. So this is like some sort of protagonist in the present moment who's able to live the story as well as comment on the playing of the story as it's happening. And also somehow create it in the spot of a theater, like, like the, the theater ness of it <laughs> and, and the theater's ability to become somewhere else um, is, is on full display in those, in those uh, opening parts of the, of the monologue. And then on through the play, cause it is, it continues to be, uh, a there's there's scenes where he like falls through the floor of the of the of the folly and uh, they they dance to music uh, from off stage and it's it's just a highly theatricalized high um uh, it's it's like trying to be realism I feel like um but but for the middle very, part of the play <laughs> yeah but a very theatrical realism because of the bookends of the play right like like this is the extent to which this play acknowledges its status as a play matt has given the narration of the the sort of the the period why they're there how long they have to do it he's done this b metaphor and then he goes <laughs> oh yeah there's people probably walking in late so i should probably do all that again so he just does it over again but faster yeah. like for the people who walked in late in, in another sort of situation, I would say it was almost like there's disorienting uh, techniques built into this because, but, but he continues, he does it so frequently that I, I, I think it's more of just like a character trait thing. Cause like he has this, this like disorienting feature about him where he like flashes back, retells that whole scene. He's asked a direct question and says something that just doesn't make sense. Um, we eventually, you know, in maybe the second watching, certainly the second reading of it, go back and realize, oh, he's talking about his family. But he start when when she directly asks him a question about his family, he starts a joke for for about a paragraph. <laughs> And you just don't know where the ride is going. It's very, very disorienting, but that tends to be the way he just functions as this storyteller being. So if you're Lanford Wilson, why did you write the play like this? Like, why not just start (laughs) the play with Sally calling, hey, Matt, where are you? Are you in the boathouse? And her coming in. What is the deal with this theatrical meta story? Boy, that's a that's a great thing for like a, a paper. Um, <laughs> um, I I wonder if if it isn't this uh, this kind of because of the the interaction and the depths which are going to you have with this scene at the beginning. You kind of have the sense that this is a he says it. He says that this is a once upon a time story. So you kind of uh, enter into this almost folktalic space. Of of saying okay, so I'm 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 hanging in there for the ending because surely there is one. 
<laughs> um, where 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 somehow this works out or something like that. Um, and and I, especially there are many points in the play where you find yourself, you know, despairing of their ability to reconcile in any way. Um, but that scene at the beginning kind of gives you that moment that that that's that sense that you have you've you've come here at the invitation of a storyteller and the story, despite the fact that he apparently doesn't really know how the story is going to end, you still have that sense of I'm I'm here to see a story that has an end to it, um, and and somehow it will be brought to completion in 97 minutes. Um, so 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 that I think there's there's something of that at play in there. And there's something about like the juxtaposition which he's trying to achieve artistically. I'm not sure. It's a little, I don't know. It's a little nebulous to me exactly how it serves the story of Matt and Sally's romance. But and in terms of the artistic value, the 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 middle part of the play, let's call it, it's not a play within a play, but like the story of the play is sort of as highly romanticized, beautiful, psychological drama. I mean, the, the productions of this play are well known for elaborate lighting designs. You've mentioned soundscapes, this beautiful natural setting. It's sort of like um, um, uh, realism's realism in the middle, you know, like gorgeous, representative, incredible art and beauty and these characters falling in love and revealing their deepest, darkest secret. I, like it's like realism's realism right in the middle, you know, the best that it gets. And then that is juxtaposed with this sort of stark work lights, uh, narrative, um, uh, it, this is just a play, don't get swept into it. You mentioned in a different kind of script, you'd sort of be like, this is an alienating technique. But again, it's like, is he trying to alienate you from like the most beautiful sweeping romance? Like, I don't know. The, the <laughs> juxtaposition seems to be an artistic goal of the piece. But how that goal serves the story, just to loop back to where I started there, I, I don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you kind of have the 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 there there there's a couple things in here that you're like, "Why? Why? Why?" Um is that <laughs> um and so, so so that I that that is kind of an interesting uh quandary that that you have as the audience and as the production team to make those make sense. Um and and there is plenty of room in this play to make those make sense. Uh, there's, there's other moments where depending on there, there's some significant like beat switches in the play where the subject matter will just switch dramatically. And there's the opportunity for Matt to continue in relationship with the audience in those moments. Um, there's, there's, uh, some scenes where Sally does in fact leave the premises and there's opportunities for this storyteller to still wink at the audience in that stage or something like that. So there's plenty of like interesting opportunities to try to uh, keep the two worlds consistent with each other. But also you just probably don't need to try too hard because the juxtaposition is one of those, the, the things that makes the play truly great. They're probably one of the things that won a Pulitzer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that without that incredible... Uh, theatrical imagination that makes those bookends of the play. This is not the incredible piece of theater that it is. And with it, it is uh, just a striking, memorable thing to to read, to see. I've seen a production, not yours. And it, it 
it that doesn't mean that I don't scratch my head and go, this is fascinating. It's so effective, but why is it effective? I have right. no idea. <laughs> How is this happening? <laughs> How is Lanford Wilson? A G- I mean, something about this really works, but he is like that level of dramatist where you're sort of like, it, it doesn't seem like it should. Like, it seems like a freshman playwright who submitted something with this kind of format, somebody might be like, you could probably just lop off those narrative bookends at either spot. Right, you know? right. Just, just do the story. <laughs> right. And yet somehow, and yet somehow this would I mean, the play would be missing something without it. I really, I think most people would have left it on their bookshelf a long time ago if it were just this kind of cute little romance that makes up the middle of the play. I think that's just about all the time that we have to talk about this play. It's been a great conversation to get to talk about Tally's Folly again. It's the first time I've reread it or thought about it in like, you know, however many years it's been. It was cool to like rehear the lines again and, and think about how, how that all happened and to really dig into this plot and these characters uh, and, and their kind of slow reveal of their of their secrets yeah this is a really fun conversation to have it's fun that you've done the show it's fun to come back to somebody like lamford wilson but just because we're conversation for this time ends doesn't mean the larger conversation has to end it's true. We'd love to keep talking about Tally's Folly with all of you out there in podcast land. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on any of those sites. And if you're looking for someone to talk about the play, whether you were in it, whether you've read it, whether you've seen it, we'd love to be those people. And we'd love for this community to be talking about it together in general. So find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you. Absolutely. If you'd like to recommend this podcast to your friends, family, Anybody you know that likes literature, likes scripts, likes theater, we would love for you to do that. You can send them our way. We're on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. You can also like us on Facebook where every Monday a link will appear with that new episode. All you got to do is click and it will play for you. Stay excited for Themed Month. It's coming up soon. We'll make an announcement about it soon. Um, But next week, we'll be back here talking about another play. So until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see ya. We'll see ya.